Hello, welcome to Free Will Science and Religion. I'm Chandler Klebs, and I'm here with Michael Walsh, David Joseph, and George Ortega. And in our last Free Will Science and Religion episode, uh, Michael Walsh mentioned Mitch, Mitch Jay is with us also, right? Yeah. Hey, whatever happened to Mitch? I'm here. Oh, oh yeah, he, yeah, he's there. I, okay, yeah, we got Mitch too. Slight correction. Okay. Anyway, um, in our last episode. Michael Walsh had brought up two things. Um, one of them was about do you do you you know um, refute religion first before you introduce the free will topic, or can you can somebody see free will as an illusion first and then they deal with how that what that implies for their religion. That was one of them, and the other one was kind of related about will the free will debate. Um, replace the creation versus evolution debate. So perhaps I'll turn it over to Michael Walsh and he can clarify these things. Yeah, thanks. Um, so basically, if you're, you know, if you're a member of this podcast, you have the general view that, uh, you know, free will is an illusion and you are motivated to at least some degree that this idea should be spread, you know, that we should be uh, evangelizing, so to speak, to, to kind of spread this message that free will is an illusion because um, we've reasoned that it is the truth. So when it comes to taking people who are not uh, on board with this, who still hold to some belief on free will, we're going to get some pushback, obviously, since free will is an integral part of one's worldview and how they see themselves in the universe. And one of the biggest pushbacks we'll get will be from religion, because most concepts of religion have a view of free will in it. You know, for example, there are a lot of Christians who say that, well, if there is no free will, then the concept of sin makes no sense. And if, 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 if the concept of sin makes no sense, well, then Christianity makes no sense. And I don't want to believe that. So I'm just going to just ignore you, Mr. Determinist. Get out of my way, you know? So the, the, the uh, one possible issue that arises when it comes to the pushback that we're going to receive, when it comes to educating the general public on the non-existence of free will, is going to be religion. And so the question arises, should we focus on refuting the religious belief first, which would make it easier to lay the groundwork for non-free will or make the argument for non-free will? Or should we focus on refuting free will first and just kind of ignore religion and keep that to the side? Because I, I'm introducing this as an open question because I think it's something that, that should be discussed and it is debatable. My view is that we should probably refute the religion first because once you refute the religion first, it makes it a lot e easier to lay the argument and the groundwork for non-free will. But I'm not 100% sure about that because I do run into atheists from time to time that are pretty diehard free will believers, even though they're essentially materialists. And to me, I, I don't see how that makes any sense. But, you know, they've been, you know, they've been inculcated in this cultural belief in free will since birth, essentially. So I'm putting that out as an open question. I mean, what do you guys think should be the thing that we should focus on more? Well, I have a few thoughts on that, first of all. Um, one of the problems that I see, Michael, is basically once people, you know, they lose their religion and they give up this idea of a God who has predestined all things, well, then, once they become atheists, then they get this idea, well, if God's not in control, then I am in control. And then they turn hyper-free will. I've seen this happen before. 
Yeah. So it's all about, well, atheism is about taking personal responsibility. And then they turn atheism into a free will, uh, like they turn free will in as a dogma of atheism, which I think they look silly when they do it. Nonetheless, that makes certain sense because they were always taught that God was in control. And then with no God, they think they're in control and they're not in control either. <laughs> that is a very good point. And it's something that I've also noticed a lot. Uh, in the atheist community. And I think that that itself could possibly be a bigger pushback on uh, on non-free will than religion was. Because once you get rid of religion and you think, well, I'm in control of all things now, then the idea of non-free will is so detrimental to that view that it's like you might just want to say, oh, man, just give me a gun and let me shoot myself. Yeah, so there are many reasons why um, someone might become an atheist. I, I am of the opinion that although I have experienced what Mike uh, was talking about, uh, meeting uh, atheists who uh, um, are still strong free will believers and ironically might even uh, after rejecting religion that might have even strengthened uh, their belief in free will Des despite all that despite um, the fact that I know several people who fit that description I s most atheists are atheists for logical reasons because of reason and logic they're reasonable people that have assessed the claims that um, religious people have made. They've looked at the text, looked at a lack of evidence, seen the contradiction, and come to a conclusion there's no supernatural anything, or at least there's not enough evidence for it. And all those religious narratives make absolutely no sense. So the key idea, I think, is reason. If people can, if people value evidence, if people value logic and reason, and they loosely know the rules of an argument, then you can open up a conversation to talk about free will. I don't think being an atheist is enough, but I think it's more likely that in the secular community, um, you'll find people who um, are more willing to talk about, more willing to investigate uh, determinism. So Mitch, yeah. when, um, when you're confronted by, when you, if you're having a free will discussion with someone and you're confronted by someone who believes in free will and is also a theist, like they're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or something like that, would you say that you should focus first on undermining their religion first to make it easier for them to accept non-free will? That is a great question. And I have been in those situations before. And in those situations, I do the free will argument first. When, when, I'm, when I encounter a religious person, because, you know, I'm not here to proselytize. I'm not usually concerned with um, converting religious people to non-religious people. Although I am an atheist and an anti-theist, I focus my concentration where I think it's the most helpful, like separation of church and state or ending the indoctrination of children. I don't really try to go to individuals and convince them. But if a religious person is open to the conversation and wants to discuss things, I usually go free will first because then I'm sort of clandestinely sort of approaching on their religious beliefs. Good point. That is one way to actually to to undermine one's religion in a very uh, clandestine way. I, I, I see a couple of problems with, with um, directing the argument um, to the religious community, either um, in terms of like attempting to refute God first or even like um, with, you know, attempting to to show them that, that free will is an illusion. And th that comes from our experience with evolution. You know, I mean, Darwin proposed evolution about 150 years ago. And at least, you know, in, in the United States, here in America, you've got 
of the population that still prefers creationism over um, over evolution evolution. So, like my my feeling is that um, that you know they're they're not going to you know if if, if they don't accept evolution, then then they're, then they're clearly not going to accept that there's no God because like the evidence for evolution is kind of like empirical and all, whereas, you know, the, does God exist or doesn't? That's to a certain extent, it's a semantic philosophical question. So, so even though we, we certainly have to um, tailor our um, argument to the um, religious people because they comprise so, so great a majority here in the United States, I think, um, I'm thinking that like the free will um, question may come first because then like basically we're saying, well, things are not up to us. They're up to God because like it, it, it's using their argument against against them that God is omnipotent or powerful. So they, things must be up to God. And that has a certain kind of like, you know, it doesn't attack them directly. And again, I, I think the um, trying to overcome God may be much more a matter of like what Mitch was um alluding to is like going from a kind of like belief, faith, prophecy-based religion to religion um, based on understanding that, you know, that, that it's actually rational. But again, I, I, you know, because religious people are just so immersed in what they need to believe, I'm not sure that they're, um, at, at least without a lot of peer pressure from from secularists, from naturalists, so open to, to this idea of, of, um, of understanding the logic for why we don't have free will. You, you make a good point. I mean, I think that, uh, and you and, and Mitch also, uh, it seems that to make the case for free will, uh, uh, sorry, to make the case against free will is a lot easier than to make the case against God and religion. That, that, in, that involves many, many, many arguments, whereas to make the case against free will is, is a relatively simple logical argument that anyone could get. So it seems to me that it, it would be easier to to make the case against free will than to first undermine the religion and then make the case for free will. Or I against have, free will. I have a cousin, for example, who I talked to about free will. And I purposely avoided talking to her about religion when we were having these conversations. And she's a law student and she's taking a lot of philosophy classes as well. And we had some very, you know, peaceful, engaging conversations back and forth over a, a period of weeks, perhaps months. And then one day she says, you know what, I think I'm starting to see things your way. But she's still a Christian. And what I think will happen is if she sees the conflict between her religious beliefs and now her new uh, ideas about free will, that is, if she is truly accepting the hard determinist stance or the hard incompatibilist stance, that is to say free will is bogus. I assume if she's a reasonable per reasonable person, she'll eventually see the conflict of her religious beliefs, and I think that isn't an ideal. You know, that's that's kind of what we want to have because religion is such a personal thing. When people um, when people have a theistic kind of mindset, they often say ridiculous things like "I don't need logic to defend my <laughs> like they start. They start assaulting logic, and as we all know, without logic and reason, there's no, there's no way to have a conversation. Yeah, 
um, I, I, I've come across that a lot too. They just say, oh, I, I reject science, I reject logic because I need to believe this thing, therefore I believe it. Shut up, atheist, you know? So because of that, um, I think that we are probably not going to be successful if we talk to people about religion because then they'll just shun us and stay away from us. Well, if, if I could just jump in for a second as well. Um, recently, I've had a couple of conversations with people, and they've been atheists, but they still shut down. As soon as you hear them with all the arguments against free will, they'll basically shut down, and they'll, they'll leave the conversation, and they won't return. So it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I don't know how you guys deal with that. Well, you know, sometimes I've found that you can, like... You can pretty much present the no free will argument to some people without using the term free will, and you'll get a lot of agreement. You know, things aren't really up to us, right? I mean, don't our genes and all that stuff, and they will agree. It's only once you introduce the term free will, that's where, oh, you know. So, so part of our, I was, I was actually um, thinking of suggesting to Trick, he makes these infomercials, right? And like, you know, a lot of people will admit that, for example, we can't do the good we want when we want. We can't be as happy as we want. We can't all these things. But but they will say that. Um, so imagine having a list, a checklist of all the things we can't do. And then at the bottom have like, well, yes, we can choose according to their belief. We can choose um, between an apple and an orange or we can just choose to raise our hand or not. That's the, you know. So, but but basically, my, my point is that um, that yeah, the, the term free will, you know, is is really I think um, what what really stops people. You know, a lot of times people get the logic of like um, you know the things really aren't up to us. Yeah, um, George, I think you're right there because the term free will, the the term has a tendency to put people off. And even though people are able to understand, like some people will accept, you know, people have a mental illness or they can't control their addiction. They will understand that there's limitations of us being able to do what we want. But as soon as you bring up the word free will, you find that people have been confused by compatibilists and they and they and so you find people think that free will is just being able to do what you want. Which is actually not what it's about. I would say, George, that there is a difference between the terms free will and free choice. Even though when we're talking about libertarian free will, which none of us believe in on this podcast really, um, you know, it is the concept of free choice that is at stake here. The idea of alternate possibilities that you could have chosen otherwise. So I think what, what's difficult is when it comes to the idea of free will or choice, these words are so loaded that the word, it's like you have to be sneaky about it. You have to get them to understand um, things without using those words almost just so they don't shut down. But um, in, in my experience, sometimes they are the ones that bring up the term free will. So they'll kind of see free while I'm trying to see. Maybe I'm just not very good at it. I don't know. Yeah, well, it happens to all of us, David, because, you know, people, they bring up this whole free will thing. You know, um, like for one example is I, is I wrote something on Facebook about, like, if only there was a, a, um, a pill of 
friendship or whatever uh, that made everybody compassionate and all loving and nice that I would give it to people. And somebody told me that would be wrong because it would violate people's free will if I gave them this pill. And, and I don't know. And I'm like, I don't care how wrong they think it is. I'd still give them the pill to make them nicer. Yeah, that, that's pretty weird. I mean, isn't that a bit like saying that uh, we shouldn't give anyone painkillers? They should just use their free will to kind of will the pain away. Yeah, <laughs> they should ask for it first, though. I think is the idea. But, but, but getting but getting back to what you you said something very interesting, Chandler. So, uh, so there's a there's a big secular community in New York, of course. And I think you know Mike and I know a lot of the same uh, people, for example. And uh, so I was at some secular event not too long ago, a few weeks ago. And towards the end of the night, I was having a few drinks with um, a few of these really intelligent. Is everybody? Is everything? Uh, hello. Yeah, yeah we can hear you. I just heard the sound drop a little bit there. I don't know what happened. Anyway, so yeah, at the end of the night, I was having a few drinks with some of the um, uh, with some some of these colleagues of mine, and um, they're all very smart, very passionate people. And we were, the issues of the night had to do with politics. And when it came to politics, everyone was knowledgeable and everyone contributed. But then the subject of free will came up, and I did not mention it, as, as, as I think David kind of said a little while ago. They brought it up. And then I quickly realized that no one around me really knew what free will was, and no one had really investigated the issue. Like uh, one person started making a comment and then said, yeah, 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 and they were agreeing with me, and then I concluded by... Therefore, free will is nonsense. And they went, huh? What do you mean free will doesn't do? I thought you were arguing the opposite. So, so what I'm trying to say is that I think the secular community, as I said before, those are the people that can most easily uh, be reached. But we have to understand they have not investigated the issue. I mean, personally, I hadn't investigated the issue of free will until only a few years ago. I had lived my entire life just once in a while, just in the everyday vernacular, maybe saying the term free will once in a blue moon. But I'd never taken the time out of my life to actually investigate the issue and come to a conclusion. Yeah, then- Mitch, Mitch, all right, so like, you know, relative to the secularists, I think you have to introduce the topic in a certain yep. way. And also, like, before I address that briefly, just um, you have to do the same thing with religionists. In other words, like since the Reformation, there have been a lot of different, um, there's been an evolution of religion. You know, 50% of, um, or a lot of uh, people who believe in, believe in religion don't any longer believe in, um, in creationism. A lot of young kids don't believe in hell. Um, even within the, um, the traditional church and religion, there have been changes. So I think like in, in terms of kind of like introducing the, um, the topic um, to religionists, I think we, we first have to remind them of the kinds of things that they don't any longer believe, you know, about their religion that a lot of people still believe or that, you know, people used to believe to got to kind of like pull them into that direction. But like with the secularists, Mitch, I think that um, what's important to a lot of people is the context, the, the pragmatic utility of this. So, for example, if, if you start talking about like, you know, isn't it like horrible how, you know, um, people who are overweight are shamed and, and are discriminated against and all, then you introduce, well, you know, and, and it's really not up to them, you know, that 
So, so like a lot of times when you when you place this within the context of either like you know with overweightness or with psychopathy where there's a lot of neurological evidence, you know, within a social issue, I think people are much more likely to appreciate the arguments against free will than if it's just presented as kind of like a uh, a pure philosophical argument. I get what you're saying, George. You have to attach it to something they can relate to, a personal experience that they or other people they know have gone through. Otherwise, it's not something they can understand. I'm, exactly. I'm not so sure. I, right, I was just going to say, uh, the way that I was kind of introduced to this um, whole idea that we don't have free will was, I, I think it was through listening to Sam Harris. And um, until that point, I hadn't actually thought about it at all. So there, I think there's something to do with with our, what we experience and yeah. how we can just kind of... Um, we can kind of accept it, whereas other people, they seem to have barriers and defenses that don't let them accept it as readily as we do. Well, clearly, yeah. Just the, the idea, of, for example, I, you know, Nick uh, constantly talks about the idea that people who are more successful are going to be much more into belief in free will because they want to take credit for their success much more. So there are definitely, you know, personality types and all that be, would be much um, more likely to be against our, you know, what we're promoting. Um, I, I have an interesting take on this whole religion thing related to the whole free will thing. I find that re religion can be used as an argument against free will. Obviously, you know, the omnipotent and omniscient God d definitely means that you're not in control if you believe that. And while I don't think that should be used exclusively because I think causality is, the, the, you know, the real reason why nobody has a free will. But I find it really bizarre because it, like, it would seem, even though this doesn't seem, in experience it hasn't been this way, you would think religious people would be less likely to believe in will in free will, you know, because how in the world is it compatible with their controlling God? But, but again, the problem with, the problem with, uh, as a friend of mine likes to say, religious style thinking, is that uh, it makes people unreasonable. They're just not reasonable. They betray the rules of logic. It's just wishful thinking. They're not being reasonable. So when people are saying things related to... So that, that, this, this is why I think free, free will is a good entry point. Because if someone is having a discussion about free will... And if that person doesn't immediately see the connection to religion, you might be able to have a reasonable, meaningful conversation. But once you enter religion, you get too personal. And all of a sudden, there are no longer people that you are capable of having a discussion with. So it's really a matter of strategy. It's a little bit deceptive, to be honest. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about using a, a bit of deception uh, to get this goal. Yeah, this is interesting because obviously I'm very much about honesty being the best policy. Same here. However, I don't think that there's anything wrong with this with this kind of sneaky way we're doing this. And here's what I mean is by simply not um, talking with them about the religion, by avoiding that subject, you know, we're trying to get the message across without causing them to react negatively emotionally here. I don't think it's really wrong. It's simply that we are 
omitting certain things because we know that will just create a hostile environment where where no progress will get made. So I guess well, the goal is to be able to teach someone about the non-existence of free will uh, as much as possible without them having an existential crisis. Yep. And may, maybe a strategy for that, Michael, is, um, you know, Daniel Dennett, for example, will say that, yeah, we really don't have control and all. But then he'll say, but we have free will. So a lot of times, you know, it's not, you know, based, it's not the message that, that they're, so, you know, reacting so strongly against. It's, it's the term. And, and so I think that really, that really um, kind of like um, challenges us to come up with a term, you know, a term that we begin using now, let's say on this podcast, that all of a sudden, you know, like we start using it, whether it's compelled will or universal will or something, that that um, that that even people like Dennett will be like, you know, um, forced to admit, yes, we, our will is de- whatever it is. You know, I can't I'm, we can't really say determined because of like the confusion with with randomness and stuff. But like when, when we when we uh, introduce this new term, then all of a sudden we can move the, the whole this whole historical b- uh, debate from whether there is free will to whether people have control over what they do fundamentally using a, a, a different uh, term that's not loaded. And I think that might be a very wise strategy. But again, it challenges us to come up with that term and then to really start using it a lot. There's also another uh, potential um, debate even within free will, and that is among the compatibilists versus the hard determinists. And if you look at philosophers worldwide, there was a survey done about five years ago uh, and they asked uh, several thousand philosophers uh, what their view is on free will. And uh, guess which was the most popular position on free will? Compatibilists. Of course. It was uh, 60%. 60% of philosophers worldwide uh, took the compatibilistic position. And the hard deterministic position, guess what percentage it was? That was about 20%, I think. But, like... There's there's a couple. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. It was a uh, it was 12.2 percent, and libertarianism was 13.7 percent, and other whatever that is was about 15 percent. So here's the thing, though. Even if you if you um, try to make the argument against free will, uh, there's there's no guarantee they're going to come to hard incompatibilism. Uh, most likely, what's going to happen is that they're going to become a compatibilist. Well, Michael, here's where what um, Chandler was saying relative to like the terms free will and free choice comes in, because like um, Mike, um, James Miles was interviewed um, recently, and he cited that when you use a a different um, question, when you ask, when you replace free will with free choice, you find that 80 percent of philosophers reject that we have free choice. You know, so it really, you know, you, you know, when you're asking questions, trying to evoke certain responses, you know, these interviewers know that, that just by, by saying things in certain ways, you can do that. So I think, you know, the, um, the, the um, yeah, the, the, the body of people, population that, that reject the notion that we can do whatever we want and all, you know, the, the basically the substance of free will you know, it, it, it seems higher than, than, than that survey and some other ones that, you know, free will believers try to promote sometimes. I think there's also, sorry. 
I, I was just going to say real quickly that I think there's a lot of parallels to this and um, atheism versus agnosticism, whereas people see people tend to reject what they see as a more extreme position, whether or not there might be stronger evidence for it, whether or not it might be the better uh, uh, better conclusion. Just as, just like how there are many people who identify themselves as nuns, right? They're non-religious people or they're agnostic, but they won't go as far as to say they're atheists because they feel it is an extreme position. So I feel on the issue of free will, that's sort of the default stance. Someone's investigated free will. They've realized, okay, something's up. We don't have what we think we have. But they think the safest bet is to just be a compatibilist. It's not necessarily that they um, thoroughly understand the issue and they have these biases that are preventing them from determining the truth of hard determinism or hard incompatibilism, but that they think they don't know enough and the safest position to have is the compatibilist one. Hey, I have a question related to that, Mitch. Now, you know how a lot of people, they go from, you know, they'll go from theist to agnostic um, where they feel like they're in an unsure state, and then some of them stay there and some of them just go full-blown atheist. But here's my question. Is it better to be um, agnostic than, than theist? Like, is it still better that they are there, even if they don't go all the way, than if they had stayed the way they are? And similarly, I want to say, let's say that if somebody goes from being libertarian free will to compatibilist, even if they don't go the hard determinist route or whatever, hard incompatibilist, is it is compatibilism still better than libertarianism? That that is a good question. That was one, one something I wanted to to throw out there. If everybody who believed in libertarian free will today became a compatibilist tomorrow, would that be okay? Would would, would we say okay, we're done, or would we still want to say go that extra mile and say no, that's not enough. You got to be a hard incompatibilist. Right. Do we need to be that strict about it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we do, because compatibilism is the problem. <laughs> that, compatibilism is what the problem is. That's the, that's the real problem. I don't care about the – I'm not too much concerned about the fringe group of people yeah, who I, talk about libertarian free will. That's just utter nonsense. So that is, that isn't, that's not even worthy of my time, to be honest. Compatibilism is the thing that I'm really pushing against, and I think we all are really pushing against uh, I, I disagree. Uh, to me, I, I would much rather have a compatibilist over a libertarian free willist. Uh, to me, the compatibilist has reasoned at least that there is no free will and just tries to you know look at it at a different angle than the libertarian well, person who kind of really just assumes, yeah, we have free will. It seems well, as we do, so we do. Well, allow me to give another analogy, another religious analogy. It's like saying, am I more concerned with religious extremists or moderates? I am more concerned with the moderates. The extremists, even because the, the extremists, the extremists are easy to defeat, right? The moderates are already on my side against the extremists. The that extremists, is very that, that's very Sam Harris of you. <laughs> no, well, yeah, well, you know, I'm a fan of Harris, obviously, but. But, but that's my point. My point is the fight that I'm fighting when it comes to separation of church and state, it's not really a fight against extremists because extremists, just by definition, represent a small percentage of the population. They don't have the popular opinion. It's, compatib it's, the, it's compatibilism that is the popular opinion that I'm really, really pressing against. 
Yeah, Mitch, I would agree with you. And like, for example, with climate change, it's not it's not, you know, the the deniers who are saying, no, it can't happen. You know, it's impossible that are the most dangerous. It's the people who confuse the issue, who say, well, it's not really all that important. We're not really, you know, who just kind of like muddy the waters. And with, with the free will debate, um, the problem with compatibilists is that, you know, why are we doing this podcast? Why are we on this mission? Because, you know, the world's view on this has very powerful implications on how we treat each other and how we conduct ourselves in the world. And see, the compatibilists are dangerous because they muddy the waters and, and they're not concerned with these justice issues. You know, they, you know, and, and, and plus, I, again, I, the third point, I think um, that, yes, I think the, the libertarian view, it doesn't have any defense. They just say, well, we have free will. I can't explain how we do. We just do. Whereas like the, the compatibilists will just they're they're sophists. They will like use obfuscation and they'll just muddy the waters to confuse people. And so I think that this confusion is, is, is our, our greatest challenge in this. Well, George, I agree, and I wanted to clarify some things because, um, you know, I do see that compatibilism is insane, no doubt there. I mean, because I think that unless somebody somebody doesn't fully understand the issue, if they haven't gone hard determinist or hard incompatibilist, because um, the problem with um, – like when after I was reading James B. Miles' book, you know, the Free Will Delusion, I came to I to the charts where it said, yeah, under compatibilism, sure they can come up with a free will, but that free will does not include free choice. And I think we I am really attacking the idea of free choice, and I think that the compatibilists are keeping people from reaching the absolute truth about that. And so. I'm all for refuting compatibilism, but what I would like to say is that compatibilists, crazy as they are, as far as this, you know, we can't blame them at all, but it's still better than, than the libertarian extremists who are saying, well, you know what, determinism is false. <laughs> yeah, well, just for clarification, can, can someone define free choice? Well, um, it's it's difficult, but here's the like I think Nick Vale in one of um, one of George's episodes of exploring the illusion of free will he, is that free choice, you know, or it makes it free will or free choice in that sense makes it sound like all the choices are fifty fifty. Like you could either do this or either do that, and that there's absolutely nothing. It's so almost like a free choice would almost have to be completely random and uncaused. So it still doesn't account for the responsibility, even if there was such a thing. Yeah, but, uh, Michael, excellent question. I, I don't know the distinction. I, I've been meaning to, to me, ask James. Yeah, to me, it seems as if free choice would would best be probably defined as the ability to have chosen otherwise given a situation. That, that, that to me seems like it, what it would be defined as, meaning your choice is free. It's not constrained or determined by anything. It could be X, it could be Y, it could be Z. And to me, it seems like free choice would presuppose libertarian free will. Yeah, and I would like to mention that there is a difference in these two terms of free will and free choice because while will, it, the word will 
is a real thing because I consider it as being either the sum of our desires or the strongest desire. Will, I consider that to be the same as though we did this of our will. I think that makes sense. But to say something's your choice, choice implies a, a, real alternate possibilities that you could have done otherwise. And that's why I think choice and will, the, there is a difference there. Yeah, okay, so if I can just contribute. Um, so, okay, so here's, so here's what the distinction usually is. Um, so when you, when you have a free choice, it means something was happened, something happened, even though you don't understand why it happened. Whereas someone who talks about free will is implying that they had some kind of conscious control. There's no will part of it. So a choice just means, um, like you were saying, Chandler, several things could have happened is the which is already something i'm very skeptical about but anyway more than one thing could have happened and something was made regardless of the fact that we understand why we did what we did whereas when someone talks about a free will the general perception is that you were consciously aware of it and somehow you controlled it what whatever i mean that's that's the usual uh, distinction right yeah and the, what I would like to say is that the, the term free will with the whole will part is it makes it sound as if the choice that happened was what you wanted. Whereas I think that there is such a thing as a free choice that, that well, even though I don't really think there is, what I'm saying is that some a choice could be made that was not willed by exactly. a conscious agent. Exactly. So, so computers can make choices but they're not willing those choices in a sense correct i'm a little bit confused can i just um right i was arguing with a guy and he basically came up with the argument that um we have limited choice but we have free will so we can be deciding on what to have for breakfast and we'll be limited in the choices that we have in front of us but we use our free will to choose between those choices that's in, that's obviously incorrect. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. How are you guys? Um, I think I'm Chandler. Sorry. I think Chandler just said it best when he talked about how computers have choices and can choose, but they have no will. I think that's the best way to really uh, explain it. Yeah. But again, but again, both of these terms are just terrible. They're horrible, and they're wrong. And and there, there shouldn't even we shouldn't even be talking about free choice. That shouldn't even be in the vocabulary. The reason that even exists is because of compatibilist ideas, because people are trying their best to somehow maintain some semblance of free will. So they create lots and lots and lots of distinctions to say, this is the kind of thing we can have, even if we don't have that. As George mentioned earlier, what we need is a clarification of terms. And we need an intellectually honest understanding of the way reality works. The, the, the terminology I like to use, and many others use, is voluntary versus involuntary actions. I think that has some, uh, some scope to it. That can be kind of useful. So the, that, yeah. that might be it, yeah. Yeah, the, the distinction there is that, let's say you consciously want to get vanilla ice cream. And then you get the vanilla ice cream. And then you're content that you got the vanilla ice cream. And no one handcuffed you. So you would say that is a voluntary action because you did what you consciously desired to do 
and they're content with the result. However, despite the fact you did all that, that doesn't explain why you originally had that desire to get vanilla ice cream. It also doesn't explain how you controlled the blood fl the flow of blood that went to your hand, the electrical signals that went to your nervous system to make your physical body move. In other words, none of that has anything to do with you controlling your physical body or you controlling the origins of your desire. Right. right. So this becomes a thing where somebody can be satisfied that they got their vanilla ice cream, but they are in no way responsible for the fact that they wanted um, right. vanilla ice cream in the first place. Exactly. Well, that seems to me a lot like how the compatibilists will argue that, um, you know, if you, um, if you willed, you know, if you willed without a gun to your head or anything like that to rob a bank uh, versus if someone kidnapped your family and said, hey, go rob the bank or I'll kill your entire family. Both of those situations are technically determined. You know, there's no free will anywhere in, in either, either of those situations. However, one, one involves someone just doing it because there was their will and other, another, another person was constrained by an agent, you know, who was trying to force them to do it. And they would recognize the distinction between the two. It seems to me like you're getting very close to that, though. Well, but, 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 but Mike, I'm not, argue, I'm not arguing for – I'm not saying that um, when I talk about a voluntary action – I'm not arguing for any kind of compatibilist idea. I'm just saying I am trying to help people describe a particular experience. Like right now, I'm thirsty. I really want a drink of water. So if I grab this bottle that's next to me and I take a sip of water and I sip it and I'm content and I'm not as thirsty, that, that means something. That I just want to be able to describe that as opposed to describing when – I want to get the water, like my conscious mind is saying, get the water, but then someone else in this room is pushing me. I'm grabbing at the water and they're pulling at my body and stopping me from getting it. So it's really about conscious intention. What I'm saying is I can't control what I consciously desire, but sometimes I do what I consciously desire. So that's what a voluntary action is, just doing what you consciously intend. Right. It has nothing to do with free will, though. It's just... Just so what would people... be, what would be well, then an involuntary action? Yeah, so let's or... say I wanted to get the bottle of water and you handcuffed me. And I still, like my desire is still to get the water. I'm really, really thirsty. I really, really want the water. But you've handcuffed me. And now I or, can't get or, out of my handcuffs, right? So. Or what, what, what if um, you weren't thirsty and I put a gun to your head and I say, grab that, that is bottle of water and drink it? Also an involuntary action, right? I wanted to. Um, I do agree that there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary action. And I think that we want to make sure people understand that we're not saying that there's a difference between what you want to do and that which you don't want to do but somebody makes you do anyway. But e neither of those are freely willed or freely chosen no yeah. matter how you slice it. Right. Right. Aren't we talking about like um, the difference between, say, manslaughter and murder, you know, like premeditated murder? You're right. So we, treat, we, we treat those people differently, basically. There is a difference, David, between somebody who, um, for example, they're just driving their car, um, and they and there's some some deer or some human or anything that runs out in front 
And yes, they killed it with their car, but they did not intend to do. It was not their plan. We do not think of them as a dangerous person who's, who plans to go and kill deer or children or whatever. Exactly. That would be the practical purpose, right? If you wanted to determine if someone is, has like a murderer's mindset or not. So that would be a practical, right? Yeah, there, there is a difference between somebody who, through some accident, ends up, ends up killing people and somebody who was trying to kill people. So there is a difference there, and, and the whole the, the legal system should differentiate, differentiate between the two, but neither of those are can somebody fully be responsible for in any sort of way because in any case we don't we don't choose our existence or our desires guys in in terms of clarifying this issue and then kind of like moving away from the term free will does it make sense to um to try to finalize the debate between whether things are caused and random actually you know even before going to the free will thing in other words like some of the confusion a lot of the confusion is that um people believe that that you know because certain things are not caused that can give rise to free will and like that perspective um sometimes limits our ability to to use the term determined will you know do we have a free will or a determined will I'm thinking maybe, yeah, I'm thinking if we can like, you know, just further clarify the issue by by just basically demonstrating that, that you know, that a causality is incoherent, that there's no evidence for it. It's kind of like a belief like, you know, one can simply believe that the universe exists or not. And it's a belief. And so, like again, if, if I'm wondering if that's um, a proper step in, in, in this, you know, clarification of a term that people can accept. I think that's a good idea, George, because the reason I call myself a determinist rather than an, an a-free willist or whatever is because I think determinism is, is important for everyone, even if there are people who will not overcome the illusion of free will. I think they still benefit from understanding that there are causes for things being the way they are rather than thinking they happen for no reason. And so I'm very focused on causality. Right. Um, Mitch, um, Michael, what do you guys think? I mean, because um, I know some of us, you know, are, you know, we, we accept or believe that, that certain things can happen without a cause. But, you know, other, others of us, you know, are more kind of like, you know, hard determinists in the sense that everything is determined and, you know, without a possibility of, of randomness or a causality. I would uh, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, I would lean more towards determinism than indeterminism in terms of the way the universe works. Uh, it, it seems to make more sense to me uh, the the idea of of something happening without a cause, where it's totally random in some sense, doesn't doesn't seem as plausible to me. I, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out logically a priori. But given just the way things are in the universe, given all of our scientific knowledge, it seems as if everything is determined, but just that certain things are you just can't figure out, you know, what is the exact cause of, of, of it happening. So it seems it appears to be indetermined, but it actually is. But it's only a limit 
to our knowledge of the system. If we had 100% knowledge of the thing in question, of the phenomenon, we would eventually know that it was fully determined with, with cause and effect uh, un, unbroken. Yeah. Also, also, there's the weaker statement to be made, right? So, so George, so you're, you're talking about now, well, we need people to explore determinism. Forget about free will for a second. Can we get people just to say, do you understand cause and effect? And do you agree that everything has a cause? Well, well let's take the weaker statement, though. Well, okay, so, so maybe some things are a-causal, whatever that means. Aren't most things caused? Isn't almost everything caused? When we say something is a-causal, what we're really, what we, or doesn't have a cause, what we, really mean, what, we, what we really mean is there is some really strange phenomena, perhaps at the quantum level or when talking about the beginnings of the universe, where there would be some strange thing that seems to sort of contradict this idea of causality. Like, for example, the very first thing that started everything. Was everything always here? Whatever. But everything else has to have a cause. I think it's really easy to see, really easy to convince someone that everything that we interact with in our day-to-day -day life, all the simple things, pushing dominoes, thinking, walking, eating, the mechanistic processes of life, all of that is cause and effect. All of those things are determined. So I think that would be the first step, just making the weak argument. Okay, which things are caused? And once you finish discussing all the things that are caused, what's left? There's, a, there's even a way in which you can turn uh, the arguments for God against the theist and make an argument for determinism. For example, uh, one of the most popular arguments that religious people make for God is the cosmological argument. And the first premise of the cosmological argument is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, if a theist ever makes that argument, you can say, okay, let's just take that, let's just take that and, and assume that it's true for the sake of argument. Let's grant that. If everything that begins to exist has a cause, your thoughts exist. Your will begins to exist. Your desires for X, Y, and Z, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever it is, that begins to exist. If it begins to exist, then it must have a cause. And logically... Whatever caused that has to have a cause, and whatever caused that has to cause has to have a cause, and you get a chain of causes that goes back at least until the Big Bang. And once you lay that groundwork out, you've essentially made the argument for determinism. So the very arguments that try to support the existence of God, uh, unknowingly or unwittingly to the theist, make the same argument for determinism. And there's no way to get free will if everything that begins to exist has a cause. You know, Mike, you just reminded me of something. Chandler, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but I did want to, getting back to the original topic, I did want to talk about, um, you know, is uh, religion compatible with free will in any way? And also, is there any kind of model where God has free will? I want to argue that God cannot have free will. Well, you know I, what, Mitch? Um, yeah. We're at 51 and a half minutes right now, so we still have some time to talk about that because I think we're extending this to an hour because the, the discussion just got so intense. But we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, I believe. Um, George and Michael Walsh were there, and we were talking about, you know, can God have a free will and how it's so logically incoherent for anything to have free will, so God can't either. 
Oh, very good. So you guys have got through this thoroughly. <laughs> yeah, we have, but um, don't worry, Mitch. We worked it out for you. God doesn't and, have free. Michael, I just wanted I just wanted to emphasize the point you made was excellent, was powerful. We we need to devote a, an exclusive podcast to that. And again, bring it out in other ways, because, you know, the, the logic behind that is, is powerful and irrefutable. It's airtight logic. I mean, if everything that begins to exist has a cause, there cannot be free will. It's just it's just totally incoherent. But again, it's right. using it's using the theistic argument against them. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Michael Walsh, that was really good because I've I've read, you know, arguments for the existence of God and I've come across that cosmological argument. I think it's also called like the first cause argument or something like that. Um, but what's interesting is I just always kind of dismissed it because it was sort of a sort of a weird idea because. They, I don't think it really gets you the existence of God from that argument. But as you pointed out, if somebody accepts the premise that everything that begins to exist has a cause, well, then they have essentially argued our uh, determinism for us. By so, the way, doesn't God have to have a cause too? If well, everything has for, to have a cause? Well, here's what's funny. God is exempt from that because he's special, according to the theist. <laughs> well, no, no, guys. I mean, we got to acknowledge logically that when we get to like, you know um, – considering whether everything was eternal or, or had a first cause, I think it transcends logic. I think it transcends our ability, whether we apply it to God or the universe. You know, it's something that I don't think logic can give us an answer to that. Well, wait, wait, wait. Transcends logic. You, oh, hold on. Come again, man. <laughs> All right. So, like, in other words, like, to me, like, you know, to posit that the universe had a beginning or that God had a beginning, you know, then uh, invites the question, well, um, I mean, what created it? What created this beginning? Because we, we, you know, this 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 idea of causality is so central to the understanding of reality. But you know, then you know, because we live in a world where things do have beginnings, including the universe, you know, to posit that either God or the universe existed eternally invites the question, well, how could it have existed eternally when it must have been created because everything we know, you know, within and, and even the universe itself was created. So that's how I say that, like, neither, um, neither prospect is completely satisfactory logically. I tend to lean more toward the eternal existence of the universe, God, whatever, but again, it's not a completely satisfactory. I think leaning conclusion. would be an understatement. <laughs> well, no, no, I because you I, to leave. no, I don't, because like basically, um, the, the the question is, as I'm as I'm saying, as I'm, I'm explaining, I can't use logic to to resolve it. To resolve whether there was a beginning of God or the universe, or whether God or the universe are eternal. I don't you know, think again. it's illogical. I think we just don't know enough. I don't think it transcends logic. I think we just we well. Not, I think not... I think logic does come into play here, and, and me and Chandler touched up upon a little bit of that on the last episode. So maybe we can have a have an episode devoted to that, or mostly to that. Yeah, that sounds good. Because in the future, I would like to know more about what George means when he keeps saying something transcends logic, because he said that in a lot of episodes. <laughs> I mean, because yeah. something that transcends logic to me would, by definition, be illogical. It sounds that way. Um, for example, um, consider consider whether this is logically possible. You, you keep on getting small, take an atom, right, and then like get smaller, 
and, and, and consider that there are like countless atoms in the universe, right? If you keep getting smaller within each atom, you get smaller and smaller and you get infinitely smaller. So what you come up with is a, uh, an infinite number of infinitely minute universes within this one expansive universe. You know, it kind of like defies logic to consider that. Well, I think, George, what you mean is it blows your mind. <laughs> well, yeah, because logic is what, logic is what gives us um, a sense of, of understanding. So, right, and any, anytime something just like, you know, for example, like 2 plus 2 equals 5, that's clearly illogical. But, you know, I think, there, you know, I think you're right. We have to explore the, more in more detail what, what the concept of logic is relative to this. Um, but again, it seems to me like, for example, like some, something else that is illogical to my mind, at least, is they, they say the universe, you know, started as a singularity, you know, the size of smaller than an atom, and then it expanded to this. All right. Then, you know, the obvious question, what did it expand into? How could it, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like there's, there's certain constructions that, that we, we accept, but they don't, you know, they, they, they're quote-unquote illogical. The, the, the logic doesn't support them. So These things, when we have these semantic games about these things that, uh, of whether things always existed or whether there was an A causal event that started things, we're talking about stuff of long before that we couldn't have evidence. We're, it's basically just talking about stuff we'll never know. Well, but Chandler, there's, there's a way of kind of like knowing according to evidence and then according to principle. And, and you're right. I mean, fundamentally, we're guessing at everything because like, you know, like, you know, our known universe is 4% of the universe is out there, 96%. So like, yeah, we could have a very skewed impression of everything. But, um, but you know, so, so we're always relying on, on the best, you know, either logical or empirical evidence. Yeah, and it's definitely worth discussing. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it, and it is fun to guess at this stuff. But ultimately... I, I've had to accept that I'll never fully know all this stuff. And again, like, you know, like for example, do we know that the universe exists? I think that categorically, fundamentally, irrevocably, yes, it exists. So a lot of times it really depends on what, what it is that we're attempting to know or, or understand. And one more thing before we close out this episode, I think Michael Walsh's point about the cosmological argument being an argument in favor of determinism is something I had never seen before. I think that's really powerful. And I think in the sake of our discussions with theists who use that, we'll say, okay, I'll agree with you that with the, everything that begins hat that exists begins to exist has a cause. So I think we can es establish common ground with them and then explain how that implies no free will without necessarily having to get into why we don't believe in God. Because just <laughs> The thing is, though, once you turn the argument around against the theist, you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, oh, but our will is an exception to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll do they'll that. that. But your will yeah. began to exist, so how in the world? Yeah, it, it, then it refutes the premise of the argument. If our will is an exception, then it isn't everything that begins to exist has a cause. It's some things that begin to exist have a cause. Well, notice how God is an exception to the rule and our will is an exception to the rule. You know what? I, the, universe, the universe can't be an exception. That's the thing. What's interesting is I get the feeling that people's God is their free will. That's the God they're believing in. I, I think they'll just say that um, you know, God uh, was uncaused and God gave me free will. 
therefore I have free will. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, there is a weaker argument. They don't have to say everything has a cause. They can say everything, almost everything has a cause. That's still an argument to be made, right? Yeah. Well, we've passed an hour on this, so I think we want to wrap this up. But we have more topics for future episodes of topics that were brought up. Okay. You've been listening to Free Will, Science, and Religion with Chandler Klebs, David Joseph, Mitch J., Michael Walsh, and George Ortega. And we talked for about an hour of all kinds of interesting things related to, you know, do we talk about free will first or do we talk about religion first when we're talking with people? So anyway, um, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Send us your comments or questions or whatever. And thank you for listening and goodbye.